0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area.
1: So let's open up our Bibles, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 4 and our study this evening as we continue our discussion of the sin offering. That's what we find in the fourth chapter of Leviticus, also in chapter 8. And this is the first of two non-sweet saver offerings and the fourth in the institutional order and first in the applicational order. Now, last week I promised that I wasn't going to take you through an explanation of all that again, not for a fourth time. But I will say the difference between the institutional and applicational order of these sacrifices is extremely important for our understanding of the theology of them. But if you don't get that yet, then I just encourage you to check out previous sermons and again ask questions if you need to. So this offering, the sin offering, is the first in the applicational order. The priest made this sacrifice before they made the others and it is a sin offering which shows us, obviously, the purpose is sin. And before we can approach God, our sin has to be dealt with. Before we can commune with Him, there must be reconciliation and forgiveness of sin. Now, the sweet savor offerings, as we know, portray the life of Christ. They speak of His perfection in examples of the way that we should live. And since Christ had no sin, those sweet savor offerings can only speak about sin indirectly. They don't picture forgiveness, but rather the perfect obedience of Christ to the Father. First of all, in his active obedience, that would be in the way that Christ obeyed commandments, and then also in his passive obedience, which is his submission to his heavenly Father. So the order of sacrifice has to be non sweet savor first and then sweet savor, which shows that justification with God is. Uh, before our sanctification in which we grow in the grace of God. Now, with that in mind, I'd like for us to turn our attention to the place that we left off last week. And this is point number three in our outline, which is the categories of sinners. If your Bible has subheadings like mine, it outlines these categories, so uh, there isn't really a need to be inventive. But if your Bible doesn't have those subcategories in it, then you're not going to have too much trouble uh, finding the divisions in the chapter, they're, f- they're fairly clear to us. So the first that we looked at is the sins of leadership. And in Leviticus 4, verse number 3, it says, If the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin, which he hath sinned, a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. If the priest that is anointed do sin... The leadership that we're speaking of is the religious leadership, and it is the priests that have the duty of making sacrifices for the people. Uh, Aaron stood in the place of Christ as emblematic of God's great high priest, but Aaron could not perfectly fulfill that type because he was a man. He was a sinful man, just like the rest of the people. And so before he could intercede for them and sacrifice, his own sins were a problem. The great high priest... Uh, doesn't have sin, as I said, and so before Aaron could represent him, and to make an offering for the people, his sins had to be taken care of, and so there were things that he went through, a, a sacrifice that needs to be made for the symbolic removal of the guilt of sin. So this is where every play, everything starts, right here. Uh, salvation is a work that begins in God, and so the priest that Represents Christ, initiates all the offerings by first preparing himself. He must be cleared of guilt before he's ever able to proceed with that representation. And I want to emphasize this point again, that the sin offering concerns man's fallen nature. Uh, The sin offering for the priest takes care of the issue of his fallen nature. Now, in in this category, uh, no specific sins are mentioned in this particular non-sweet savor offering. No particular sins are mentioned, and so for each case and each category, it's the fallen nature that's under consideration. And without the commission of any sin, all of us still have the seed of sin in us, that's in our nature. We're born with that, and Christ must die to heal that sin nature, as well as all the sins that flow out of the sin nature. So, from priest to people... All across the board, all across the spectrum of all people, in every place, in every culture, in every time, the world lies in the wickedness of sin. There are no exceptions to that. We are estranged from God and we are depraved. And I want to emphasize also, again, radically depraved, that we're fallen in all of our faculties, including our will, that has no ability towards any righteous active, uh, spiritual activity, So, the spiritual nature holds down the ability of people to repent and believe in Christ, and that has to be overcome. And the only way that it can be overcome is by the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Uh, Recently, I I heard a a man mock the use of the term monergism, and when he did, he gave more credit to men than God does. Mono means uh, alone, it means singular. And so I'm going to stick with the Bible on this, that the work of awakening a sinner to his need of salvation is the singular work of the Holy Spirit. And so the sin offering comes first. If anyone tries to get around that, uh, that person finds himself shut out. It's impossible to please God without first applying this offering. And it's only by Christ's work that we are at peace with God. So you're not going to sit down with God... And be reconciled to him without this sin offering. And that reconciliation aspect is something we'll take up uh, in a later lesson. Now I want us to look at our text in chapter 4. The priest killed the bullock. And then we see in verse number 6. That he took the blood into the sanctuary. And he sprinkled it seven times before the veil. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood. And sprinkle of the blood seven times before before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. He's to do this seven times. Uh, I've mentioned in the Sunday morning sermons that seven, when we see that in Revelation, that is a picture of completion. It signifies perfection. And seven is used multiple times throughout Scripture, beginning with the Sabbath rest, beginning in the very beginning, that is with the creation, that we find there are seven days in each week. And I might add that there isn't any reason that we have seven days in each week. It might as well be ten, it could be six, it could be five, it could be three, except for this one thing. God created the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh. And so every Sunday morning, the atheist and the evolutionist begins his week And he begins by counting off the days, and he plans his week, and that's done 52 times every year. And every time that they do, they give a shout-out to God that he created the world. These are poor simpletons who don't know that the heavens declare the glory of God, and yet they declare the glory of God by keeping God's order of time. But that's a different subject. It is emblematic of the use of the number 7, and so when the priest went into the sanctuary, he sprinkled the blood seven times, and doing it seven times showed the completeness of it, that God does it all, that God completes His salvation, and His salvation is all His work, only His. Now, I thought about this, and I thought about how many times the sprinkling of blood occurred. There are hundreds and thousands of sacrifice. Every day in Israel was a day of sacrifice, and so the tabernacle stood for 500 years, and this, this symbolism of sprinkling the blood is done continuously. And so I thought that I might want to check that out. Where exactly did the priest sprinkle the blood? And, and I couldn't see how it would be possible, considering how many times that this was done, that that blood was sprinkled directly on the veil. Now I started to look this, look this over and search this out, and I found that there are some people who believe that what the priest did was to sprinkle the blood on the veil. And then you think about thousands of sacrifices that are made over so many years, what do you think that veil is going to look like after a time? Well, it would be thick with blood, rotting blood and stinking. So I've come to the conclusion that the priest couldn't have sprinkled the blood directly on the veil, but on the floor in front of the veil. And that floor is a dirt floor. And so even uh, after Israel got the tabernacle into Canaan and left it in one place for many, many years, that's not as much of a problem to deal with blood that's on the floor. But regardless of the place that the blood is sprinkled, we do know it's taken inside of the tabernacle and there before the veil that sprinkling of the blood occurs and that's a picture of the approval of Christ's blood, that sacrifice that grants our approach to God. Now later we will discuss how some blood was taken behind the veil and that blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies and and that's the application of the blood that satisfies God. But in verse number 7, some of the blood, it says, is put on the horns on the corners of the altar of sweet incense. Verse 7, and the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord which is in the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, we had this picture that I want to show you now of the altar of incense. And we discussed this a little bit when we were talking about frankincense. And there you can uh, see the priest applying some blood to the corners uh, or on the uh, uh, horns that are on the corners of the altar of incense. And uh, the incense that's on that altar, even though we were talking about frankincense at the time, it is not frankincense that they burn. But it was a special mixture of spices that made up a perfume that was different from any other that Israel used. The Israelites were never allowed to duplicate this special mixture for their personal use. We find this in Exodus chapter 30, which says, And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, ye shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be unto thee holy for the Lord." Whosoever shall make like unto that, to smell thereto, shall even be cut off from his people. And I think you can see, you've already seen in what we've studied thus far, there are multiple, multiple components in tabernacle worship, which causes me to be very strongly tempted to get sidetracked and deal with all these nuances and all these different meanings. So you'll just have to pardon me when I get sidetracked a little bit. So back to these horns at the altar, the horns are a symbol of power and blood was put on those horns And, and this is to show us that the power of Christ's death is truly amazing. And we think of how many people are healed and sanctified and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and how many souls are set free by the power of that blood and how much life is created and sustained by the death of Christ, it becomes overwhelming to us. To understand how powerful that the blood of Jesus Christ is. The altar of incense also stands for intercession. And we have a part in that altar today by the power of prayer. You and I can go to this altar in the symbolic sense. And there the prayers of God are heard by God. Now, again, we need to prepare for a side trip here. In in Revelation 8 verses 3 and 4, it says... And this is a scene in heaven. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Now if you want to know why does it take so long to get through these series of messages... Well, it's because whenever we get into the Bible, we're on a Bible trek. The Bible is just an amazing book with all kinds of interconnections and interwoven with so many things that only an omniscient God could figure out how to make all these things work and put all of it together. But back to our scripture, uh, the blood on the horns of the altar shows that intercession can't happen without the sacrifice. Uh, The blood offering represents the priest 's relationship with God he can come to God because he has blood, and then there 's other blood used. The rest of the blood is not sprinkled uh, not sprinkled on the, that is not sprinkled rather on the horns or taken inside uh, for other purposes. That blood was collected and then poured at the base of the brazen altar outside of the entrance to the tabernacle. Now I have also for you a picture of this altar and the priest as he's pouring out the blood around the base of that altar. Now, I want to talk to you about that for just a minute. We, we haven't discussed this altar, but what you're looking at there is a, is a representation of the main altar of sacrifice. That would be the focal point of the courtyard as you went into the tabernacle area. And that altar was used for only this purpose. It's brazen. It's made of brass. That represents judgment. And this altar is a type of Christ where the fire of God fell down in the suffering of Christ on on the cross. Now, we'll sidetrack just again, uh, a little bit again. I want to show you uh, just uh, uh, something very special about this altar. That when the construction of the tabernacle was finished and all the uh, uh, um, articles of it were complete, when everything was set up, when all the directions uh, were given to the priest... And everything is ready for the first sacrifice to be made. They killed the animal. They put it on the altar. And then God rained down fire from heaven and lit the first fire. This is our next picture. And if you could imagine this for a moment, here is the priest waiting on God. The the, the, sacrifice is put on the altar. And this is just a monumental moment in the history of Israel's worship. This is the first encounter... That Israel has with the centralized worship of the Lord their God. And this is a time that was very highly anticipated. All of the people were involved. As as they brought everything that, that was given to make these articles. These furnishings. This altar. And everything else that went into the tabernacle. And so the people took their their items of gold, they took their jewelry and their earrings, they took bracelets and necklaces of gold and pots and pitchers of brass and they put them all into a heap so that there was so much that Moses had to tell them to stop. They were anxious to get into the worship of the Lord their God and brought so many items that Moses said, you have to stop. And yet they were joyfully bringing all these things to the Lord. That's in our next picture where we see the people, as they're bringing all these different items uh, to, to make these, these, uh, the bowls, the basins, the, the items of gold that are made, the candlestick, the show table of showbread, and on and on and on. The people bring all of these offerings. And as I said, Moses said, you've got to stop giving. We're getting too much stuff. And uh, as I've said before, Moses was not a Baptist preacher because we are never going to tell people, stop giving. We've got enough. You bring it, we'll spend it. I promise you. Now, thinking, uh, thinking about that issue, uh, there was a couple of... I guess it was right before I went on vacation that uh, Tate, uh, Tate, it was, Tate found a dime on the floor, I don't know if Tate even remembers this, but he found a dime on the floor, and he made sure to bring me that dime to put it in the offering, because he was not going to keep that dime. And I thought, well, there's a man that is never going to steal God's offering. Uh, he's not going to put that in his pocket, so we don't have to worry about him not giving tithes when he gets older. So Moses had enough, he, he told the people, you can stop bringing now. And all of the people had participated in this, they, they were all a part of this worship and they were happy to bring everything that they could without holding back. And so they were very intensely interested in the finished product. What is this new worship going to be? What is this going to look like? And so they were anxious about it, and I'm sure there was a, a buzz that went through the crowd and they were fidgeting and excited to see what would happen. Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles a few pages over to chapter 9, the preparations of Aaron for the sin offering are discussed in this chapter, in the first part of it. So the animals were killed, the blood was sprinkled, and then various other offerings of burnt and grain and peace offerings, all of that was ready. And now you have 2 million people in Israel, and they're, they're, they're stacked up as close as they can get to the tabernacle And as far as the eye can see, all of these Israelites have gathered to watch and see what will happen. I imagine there were indeed more than at Trump's inauguration. Two million people that were there in the crowd of Israel to watch and see what God would do. This is the first offering in the history of tabernacle worship. And then this is what happens in verses 23 and 24. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offerings and the fat, which all the people saw. When all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. And we see again that that fire falling down from God. And imagine what a sight that must have been. And then all of Israel, in in a deafening chorus, shouted, and then like a a giant wave, they all went to the ground. I mean, Benny Hinn has never seen so many people slain in the Spirit. They all went down in the ground to their faces in reverence for the Holy God. So here, they saw a display of God's mighty power. And I don't think that we can grasp the magnitude of this, because we've never seen anything like this. Again, I'm thinking, as I read stuff like this, And does it stump you to understand the impact, how they can forget the impact of this moment? And yet these are the very same people that very shortly began to murmur against Moses. They doubted God. When they could have moved into Canaan in a very short amount of time, they were too afraid to do it. How can anyone doubt God after they'd seen this? But they did. And because they did, they spent 40 years in the wilderness and that generation died. The one that saw this happen, that generation died before entering the promised land. Well, here's a good place for me to sermonize. Does this tell you anything about the sin nature? Does it tell you anything about how Satan is able to blind our eyes to the gospel of Christ? Does it help you to understand the depravity of man and how it's so deeply entrenched into us that there's no one that can overcome that depravity without the Holy Spirit? And yet, once again, this is a critical piece that is denied by those who say, I can do this by myself. It's my decision to trust Christ. And then God elects me. Or then God does this, or God does that. It's not God who chooses me. I'm the one who makes the decision. I decide when I come to Christ. And folks, when I hear that, it sounds like blasphemy in my ears. I don't want that taught here. I don't want that brought into our church. No, the testimony of Scripture in so many places, in so unmistakable ways, says to us that we must bow our knees to the sovereignty of God. I chose God before He chose me. I came. I'm not effectually drawn by the cords of love. This is my decision. Let God stand aside and I'll do what I do. And I needn't tell you, I'm aggravated by that. I'm, I'm irritated by that. And you can have that kind of stuff. I don't want any part of that. But my aggravation doesn't mean very much. You need to watch out for God, not for me. This fire fell from heaven in a terrifying way, and in a glorious way. It's the terror and the sense of awesome respect. So they shouted glory to God, and they fell on their faces in holy respect. They were much more in awe of God than many of our Baptist people are. Now, here's another interesting note. They could never let this fire go out. Now, if you look in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Leviticus 6, 12 and 13... It says, and the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering and order upon it. And he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. Now just look at that again. It shall never go out. It fell from God. This is the fire that started their worship. God put His seal on this. It is His fire. And they were to attend it day and night to make sure that that fire was burning continuously. And it's interesting that parts of the, the fire was separated to different areas of that altar for different purposes. They took their fire for other offerings from these different sections where fires were burning on the altar, the, the brazen altar. For example, the fire for burning incense was taken from this altar. And so they could never light a fire from another place and use that in worship. Now, keep your Bibles open. Let's go over to chapter 10. And here we see the consequences of using a different fire. This is in Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer... "...and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord." Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire... Now, that fire that they offered was not a fire that came off of this altar, so it's not the Lord's fire. And so God just opened up heaven again, and He sent down more fire and consumed Nadab and Abihu. There's a picture of that, if you want to if you'll see that, there's Nadab and Abihu being consumed by fire from God. Now, this is this is interesting, because the Jews believe, and and I believe rightly so, uh, that From the time of the building of the tabernacle to the time of the temple, the fire never went out. When they moved the structure, when they picked up everything and took it to a new location, they lit torches off of this fire of the altar and kept those torches burning until they got everything set up again. And then when they got that altar put back into its place, they rekindled the fire from the same fire that God had given. Now, I want to show you something else. Let's go to 2 Chronicles for just a minute. And we want to look at the uh, dedication of the temple by Solomon. And in this this uh, passage of Scripture, we see the fire of God falling down once again, and the glory of God filling that house so the priests could not stand to enter it. It's the 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Now the glory here is the same thing that you are familiar with when you hear the word Shekinah. Shekinah means dwelling. God came into this house. God came to dwell In this house. And there isn't anyone who can experience the full glory of God. And so when this happened, the brightness of God's glory fell at the temple. God was in that light, and the priest could not stand in the presence of God's glory. Now, once again, here is another day that's etched in Israel's memory. And yet, what do we see? It's not long after this, at the end of Solomon's life, that the kingdom was divided. The northern tribes deserted God. Uh, They split off under a rogue king named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was at least wise in this, that he knew the power of the temple. And he knew that if he didn't do something, that the people's hearts would be turned back to God and they would reunite, and then Jeroboam loses his opportunity to be a king. And so what Jeroboam did was to set up other altars, and so he set up an altar in the far north of where those ten tribes were located in the city of Dan. And there he built a great altar, a golden calf, where they worshipped heathen gods. And then also in the southern part of the kingdom, so those down there would not have to travel so far to get to a place of worship, he built another altar at Bethel. And there, another golden calf. But in neither of those places was there the glory of God, because that's not God's altar. Now eventually, Judah also departed from God. And amazingly, at the end of Solomon's life, it was Solomon who set in motion the division of the kingdom. And he did that when he married foreign wives, and they turned his heart away from God. So Solomon set up other places of worship to heathen gods. Now, if you'll turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. we're going down trails tonight, so we might as well go to the end of this one to see what happened. And in 1 Kings chapter 11... This is at the end of Solomon's life, and we see what he did. For it came to pass, verse number 4, For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrifice unto their gods. Everything that we've read there is bad, but it's the seventh verse. That's the verse that really blows my mind. It says that Solomon set up a high place for Chemosh in the hill that is before Jerusalem. This means right in the site of Yahweh's temple. So that people approaching Jerusalem from that side, the first thing that they would see was the altars of Chemosh and not the temple and the temple mount. And then it says that he set up a place for Molech that's the same God that they burned human sacrifices to in the valley of Hinnom. And if you're familiar, you should be, with the New Testament, that Gehenna hell is the reference that Jesus used for that very same valley where they made these heathen sacrifices. And so, we look at that also, and isn't that a, a stunning thing that people would do after that awesome display when God sent down fire at the dedication of the temple? How much more evidence do we need of human nature? If Solomon, who is a saved man, could do that, then I have to ask you, what hope is there for a lost person to muster a decision for Christ? Does human depravity permit that? How many ways does God have to tell us this? Now, I hesitate to keep keep hitting you with that, but if your preacher misses this in the Scriptures, what else doesn't he know? And we teach regeneration repentance and faith in that order because of the deafening thunder of God's word against man's ability then let me also say that in God's glory in the temple and God's fire that fell down on the praise and altar in the tabernacle that there's a visual of his presence fire that is to never go out is a symbol that God is always with us and he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that's a, that is a promise for Christians living in New Testament era. That's the hope of our eternal salvation. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am, not, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And where does that hope that we've just read derive from? Where is that hope born? It's birthed back up in verses 29 through 30 in the golden chain of salvation. For whom he did foreknow, then he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called. And whom he called, then he also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. This is where we stand. These are the doctrines on which we stand. Take everything else that you believe elsewhere. You don't stand with God or with us if you do not say salvation is all of the Lord. Now, I want to use your imagination, or want you two to use your imagination again, and this time I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 5. The memory of the dedication of the temple did in fact stick in the minds of Israel. That memory never left them. And they always kept it alive. And even though they wandered away from God, the temple that was standing there on the Holy Mount, always visible to them, always there on the Mount of Zion, was a reminder of that day when God sent down fire. And so in 586 B.C., in the siege of Jerusalem by Babylon, no one thought that the temple could be destroyed. The Jews thought it couldn't. Uh, they, They had heard the stories of how God sent down fire from heaven, how he filled the temple with his glory. And when the walls of the city of Jerusalem were breached and the Babylonian army began to stream in, there were many who ran straight for the temple for shelter. They didn't believe that the temple could be destroyed. They said, we will be safe if we can just get to the temple. And then in a symbol of God's judgment falling upon Israel, the fire of the temple went out. The Babylonians destroyed it. They took all the vessels of gold. They took the altars and the instruments of service. Everything was taken into Babylon. And so here in Daniel, we see the Babylonians drinking and getting drunk out of the vessels that were used in the temple. In verse number 2 of chapter 5, Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Fire in God's temple had gone out. The temple was destroyed. Now we want to turn to Haggai chapter 2. This one might be a little bit harder for you to find. I don't know where it is either, so I just wrote it down. So Haggai chapter 2. And uh, by the way, uh, you know I get to these scriptures rather quickly, so that's why you have a listening sheet. You can get ahead of me by just looking at the listening sheet and seeing where the next scripture is. So you can just go there and find it before we get there to read it. Uh, The Babylonians then destroyed the temple. The glory of God never returned to it. And then when the second temple was completed, this is the scene that's in Haggai. The prophet says in verse number 3 of chapter 2, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? When the second temple was completed... There wasn't any fire from heaven that lit the altar. The glory of God didn't come down in the same awesome display. The sacrifices were resumed. They continue with those. But the glory of that temple never approached the glory of the first that Solomon built. But you know something? God is still the same God. And God doesn't forsake His people in repentance. And so God made a provision for still another temple. And in this last temple... This one will be accompanied with God's glory again when it's built. Look at verses 6 through 9. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. The desire of all nations shall come. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our great hope. The Lord will return to his temple. He'll return to a new glorious temple in a kingdom that will be established upon the earth. And so Christ will reign from the throne of David over all of the earth. And if your imagination has not been blown away by this tonight, imagine when Christ comes in the fire and the glory of God that fills the temple on that day. All we can say, it's too wonderful. It, it, it's too marvelous, the God that we serve. And so if I wander around the Bible a bit, as I did tonight, to enable you to see God, I hope that you're good with that. That we're able to see God. Now let me give you just one more thought about the brazen altar This is the place of sacrifice, it's the only place, it represents the cross, and the cross is the only place for the sacrifice of sin, Christ's death on the cross, and God accepts no other sacrifice, and he accepts no other place of sacrifice. So there's a peculiar thing that happened at the dedication of the temple by Solomon. Uh, As glorious as that scene was in Leviticus, a fire falling down from heaven... The temple dedication dwarfs what the people saw in Leviticus. Totally way beyond anything that they could think of in the book of Leviticus. Now, let's go to First Kings chapter 8. In Leviticus, there are only a few animals that were sacrificed. But in 1 Kings, there are herds and flocks. And how are you going to get thousands of sacrifices on the altar? Well, you can't do it. So we see Solomon's solution to this problem in 1 Kings 8, verse 62. And the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered unto the Lord, two and twenty thousand oxen and a hundred and twenty thousand sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day did the king hallow the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. And there he offered burnt offerings and meat offerings and the fat of the peace offerings because the brazen altar that was before the Lord was too little to receive the burnt offerings and the meat offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. Now let me just mention something to to you first because some of you hearing, understanding the restrictions that are upon uh, temple and tabernacle worship, you know that only... Priests can make sacrifices. Now it says Solomon made sacrifices. Well, just understand that Solomon did it by commanding the priest. He brought all the animals and all the people the same. It's the priests who actually make the sacrifices, even though Solomon brings all of this uh, to the priest to to be done. But notice that it says that Solomon hallowed the middle court. And so the entire area of the temple there, the middle court, became a place of sacrifice. Again, the high priest is the one that would have done this, and so at the direction of Solomon, another altar and possibly several other temporary altars were constructed to handle the multitudes of animals that were brought. Now I mention this because of sanctification. Without the recognition that it was only by the Lord's permission that they could do this, only by the Lord's commission is allowed to be uh, permission is, is allowed to be. Sanctified and other places set up, what would have happened on that day of dedication would have been no different than what happened to Nadab and Abihu. If they hadn't asked God's permission to do this and sanctified the middle court, then that fire that came down from heaven would consume sacrifices and men and king and all because God does not permit any abrogation of His directions. Fire would fall. Anyone who dares to depart from God's instructions in worship, is a victim of that fire. So let's be reminded of this, that worship is not our choice. And I mean by that, the method of worship is not our choice. A free-for-all of singing praises by people done for the gratification of our flesh and done as entertainment is against the Word of God. The worship is for God, not for us. So I like what we do. Sunday morning worship begins with God speaking to us through His Word. And this is really the reason that I wanted to make that change, that we need to hear from God before God hears from us. We have to be very careful about the order. Leviticus shows applicational order is imperative. And... Remember that it's the vain person who puts himself before God in salvation. Now, I've exhausted pretty much most of the time. I didn't make it to 7 o'clock, but I'm going to stop here. We're lost in awe and wonder, I think, in the forest of tall trees of God's sovereignty. And I'm not done with the priest. Aaron's part, dealing with the sin nature, that's a critical issue before he can offer for the people. And so next time I want to come back to this, and we're going to talk about uh, some more. Um, uh, Talk about reasons why there had to be a replacement for the Aaronic priesthood. This priesthood is not good enough. And so there is another priesthood. This is only a type of that better priesthood, and that priesthood is the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father... We come to you looking at these scriptures and and in just awe and amazement of the mighty God that you are. Lord, too little do we consider your magnitude. It's too easy for us to sit here and drift off, even as we read the scriptures, not think about what we're doing here, not magnifying the God that we serve, going about our daily lives, doing what we do, and never thinking about the Lord God who made us all. And we're brought back to the Scriptures and the memory once again of all the great things that you do. And as surely as Israel should have remembered by seeing fire fall down from heaven that you were able to do all things and salvation is only of you, we need to have that same memory etched in our minds and live by that every single day. Help us, Lord, to do that. And then we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen your people In the Word of God, help us to be better students of it so we can look through the Scriptures in hard places like we've done tonight and find something there that speaks to the great doctrines of the faith that you teach in other places of the Word of God. There is a foundation for everything that we believe. None of it's haphazard. None of it's chosen uh, because we just simply made up something that we want to do. But Lord, we find the precedent in the Word of God in every place that we look. The power and might of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for sin and in the love of God and choosing His people for salvation. It can't, we can't escape it. Our weakness and God's greatness is before us in almost every single passage of Scripture that we open to read. Help us tonight, Lord, to honor You, magnify You through Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California.